Well, good morning. Thanks for coming and uh, worshiping and singing to our Lord together. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 or page 932 if you're using one of our Bibles here. As we're studying through 1 Corinthians, we are uh, in the middle, this is part two of the love chapter. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 7, which is this great place where Paul defined what love is about. He kind of said it's this, but it's not that. So it's not doing this, it's doing this. Um, The bottom line of what biblical love is, is that it is a a way of living selflessly. It's when we do things that are truly for the benefit of somebody else. It's very basic, but that really is radical thinking because we are just by default all about ourselves. And uh, what was going on in Corinth was that he's discussing this amazing thing that God gives us spiritual gifts, which are these supernatural capacities that each believer has to do some things better than others. And he says, these are, these are really important, chapter 12. It's really important that, that you have some strengths that I don't have, and I have strengths that you don't have. But, but something was going wrong with the way they were even serving and functioning together in the body of Christ, because some of the Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts to basically say, look at me. Look how great I am. And he'll explain even more of that in our study of chapter 14. Uh, next week. So he says, you have it all wrong. You need to be focused. He, he interrupts himself, essentially, talking about gifts to say in chapter 13. I mean, guys, you got to focus on love, not spiritual gifts. And why is that? The first line of verse 8 really answers that question. It's because love lasts forever. Love never fails, verse 8. But where there are prophecies, that's a spiritual gift, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. These these spiritual gifts have an expiration date, but we need to focus on love because love never expires. Uh, the, The term that Paul uses for fails here is really like the word falls. And uh, two of the other places it's used in the New Testament, this, this word is of a flower that falls when it dies. Literally, it's about the flower passing away, dying out. If you buy a little bouquet of cut flowers for your wife because it's a special occasion or because you forgot a special occasion, whatever the case might be, um, it's going to die. Even yeah, Priscilla has a, a pot of, of, of beautiful mums, multicolored mums uh, by her front door, and they're even in soil and they're watered, but, but they're going to die because there's just a season to them, and so there will be an end to these things. But, and, it, and it's contrasting spiritual gifts, which will end in some way, but love, which will not. Love has no expiration date. I know a lot of, uh, a lot of folks here at Open Door are using... Uh, you're using your spiritual gifts to, in some way, minister to our kids and our students in Sunday morning or Wednesday night or whatever it might be. And a lot of people are about taking care of kids today or whatever. So many people are using their spiritual gifts to minister to kids. And, and, and a lot of you are even, are even teaching. You're preparing that lesson. But you know something? If you're using your spiritual gift to teach a lesson, your lessons are going to be forgotten. 
kind of disappointing, I know. They're gaining knowledge. I know you forget sermons, too. You don't remember what I preached on last week, probably. But we forget those things, but what do we remember? We remember if somebody loved us. I was thinking this week, I remember my, my Sunday school teachers 50, 60 years ago. I, I can picture them. Uh, some are with the Lord now. Some are still alive. And, and, and so I just picture they cared about me because love Last. I think that's the first way in which uh, we're to understand this permanence of love compared to gifts is that there is a lasting impact that love has, and, and spiritual gifts don't have that. But I think there's a second way in which love remains, does not fail, lasts, does not expire. And that is that love is something we will be doing yet in heaven. We won't be using our spiritual gifts in heaven. Not necessary. We will be loving perfectly, finally, in heaven. Uh, God's going to be showing his love towards us. We're going to be loving God perfectly, finally. We're going to be loving the people that we loved on earth. In fact, we're going to be loving the people we didn't even like that are in heaven with us. So kind of get used to that. But that's why love never fails. That's why verse 13 will say love is the greatest and so he, he's making a contrast. Love never fails, but spiritual gifts do. So focus on love, not uh, showing off your gifts. Work on your relationships. And really, here in verse 8 and all the way through at least verse 12, it is, it is going to show us the relative unimportance of our spiritual gifts compared to, to love. Now, as you look at those three gifts that are mentioned out of many, that could have been prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Uh, the, gift, the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues is kind of a hot topic. It's, it's an area where uh, sincere Christians disagree, uh, specifically kind of what they were sometimes, and even more specifically, have they ceased today or not? Um, this passage won't completely answer that, but... Um, the Holy Spirit inspired this passage, and so it's, we want to dig in a little bit. Um, when you think about it, as we come through 1 Corinthians, we have looked at a number of things where it was both difficult for the church of Corinth, difficult issues, and yet they are also issues upon which sincere Christians, even today, are, are disagreeing on and trying to figure out. I'm thinking of like uh, chapter 5, church discipline. You know, some churches kind of do, some kind of ignore it. And how do you do it? That's chapter 5. Chapter 7, divorce and remarriage. All Christians agree on that, right? No, it's something that, that you, you, you even see what it says and you still wonder exactly how, do you, how does this apply to this or that. Chapter 11, we talked about the role of women in the church. That's a bit controversial, right? Some churches feel like it's more like this and some feel like it's more like that. So this is not new that Sincere believers like us in this room would disagree on something that is yet stated in Scripture, and yet we look at it and come out a little bit uh, not fully understanding. And it's really okay on one hand because there are some doctrinal positions and issues that are less or more important. There really are. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, that's, that's core. That's, that's big. That's, that's, eternity hinges on that. There are other doctrines of things that are taught in Scripture that nonetheless have a little bit less uh, importance. And so I have good friends, some of them pastors, who uh, would disagree with me, and we still love each other. Uh, 
In fact, that's an obvious, I think, application of what we see here. When it says love never fails, is that we should be focusing on love, even if we end up disagreeing about some of the specifics about tongues and when they ceased. Uh, that's, that we can live with that. So let's be generous in our love, but let's not be afraid to jump into the deep end of Bible study. So uh, let's take a little time. We've, we've, Paul has been talking about tongues already some four times in chapter 12 and earlier in chapter 13. Next week in chapter 14, it'll be all about speaking in tongues compared to prophecy. So it's a, it's a big issue, so we want to get some clues to add to kind of our, our knowledge base about the gift of tongues. And one of the first clues is what we have stated here, that tongues will cease. Let me just kind of show you in a diagram form uh, what these, this verse is saying. It says, love never ends, and it says, somehow we're lost, losing that... Uh, Well, you can't really preach a sermon without PowerPoint. <laughs> the Spirit of God needs PowerPoint. So if you get the rest of that one up there, that'll be fine. If not, I'll just tell you what it says. There we go. All right. Spiritual gifts will end. Was someone standing in front of that? Thing? No. Um, love never ends. Spiritual gifts will end. And then there are this list of three spiritual gifts, prophecies, will be done away or pass away, tongues will cease or be stilled, and knowledge will be done away, pass away. And I want to point this out because if you're using what is probably the most common uh, translation we have in the room, including the ones that are in your chairs, the, the three verbs that are connected with these three gifts, uh, in the NIV, they are different, each one is different, and they really shouldn't each be different. Because the first one and the, and the third one are the identical, that's, that's why I don't typically try to post Greek words, but it just is kind of important. Katargeo and katargeo describes both prophecy and knowledge and how they're going to end, but tongues are going to cease or be stilled. It's a different uh, Greek word. And it's, it's just a little bit of a clue that somehow it ends differently, Okay. Just kind of keep that in your knowledge base. Let's look at the prophecy and knowledge which are said to pass away then. Prophecy and knowledge, to me, almost seem to be like overlapping gifts. And I admit I'm kind of a little bit torn on what exactly the gifts of prophecy and knowledge are. Because they've both been mentioned earlier in chapter 12. Both of them have to do with communicating, communicating God's truth. And I'm convinced that both prophecy and knowledge were, in that early church, something very supernatural and would be, is different than today. The part that's different than today is the fact that God was in, a, in an era of speaking directly and specifically with new information. We didn't have a New Testament yet, correct? So the New Testament prophets, uh, Paul and Peter, etc., were really, in that sense, like Old Testament prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or whoever it might be, because like, like in the Old Testament, you see this phrase, thus saith the Lord, because here's new information you wouldn't know unless God just told me to tell you. So there's a supernatural, uh, direct, verbal inspiration part of prophecy and knowledge. 
However, it's possible that both prophecy and knowledge could be continuing gifts, in my mind, because I'm just a bit uncertain, because uh, sometimes the word prophecy is used of those, the word means simply to speak forth, or to, it's more like, like public speaking of the truth. And if it's, if it's reflecting that even what I'm doing in teaching, there's some overlap. If it's saying that we're communicating something already written down, I'm fine with prophecy still you know, being a gift today or even knowledge. We still are needing the, the scriptures. We need teachers who are knowledgeable and teaching. So I can kind of a little bit be like, I'm not sure, but I know there was something unique about prophecy and knowledge in that day when God gave specific information. And in fact, I would I would uh, warn you, if you ever hear a preacher or somebody say that, you know, this week God told me, as in new information, just, just back away. Because Revelation 22, 18 and 19 says that, that the, the, the canon, that is the scriptures, are closed. God has revealed, if anybody adds, John said, if anybody adds to this, this, this book, you should be anathema, a curse. Don't, don't add to this. So we have all the revelation we need. So in that sense... Uh, it, at least it seems that prophecy and knowledge have, been, have passed away, but we'll look at another way uh, about those as well. What about tongues? Tongues uh, should cease. Uh, it's interesting that the, just, just digging in a little bit, so kind of put your, your school glasses on for a minute, but um, the word that he used is not only a different word for how tongues cease, but it's actually in a different voice. It's called the middle voice. English doesn't really have that exactly, but the middle voice means that you do something to yourself. It's kind of like the difference of some talking to yourself as opposed to being talked to by somebody else. So prophecy and knowledge are going to end at passive voice. Something's going to cause prophecy and knowledge to end, whereas tongues are going to cease somehow of themselves. Kind of like they're going to just die out in, in that sense. That doesn't answer exactly when, but it does kind of give us a, a grammatical clue that it's something different. Again, because tongues has been a big thing in chapter 12 already, and 13, it's going to be a big thing in chapter 14, maybe this is a good time to just talk about what was the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. And we actually have a pretty clear answer on that because the first time God gave the spiritual gift of tongues, it, it's really described specifically, and that is in Acts 2. You can turn to Acts 2 if you'd like, or I'll have a lot of this scripture actually on the screen. Either way is fine. But uh, so Paul wrote Corinthians about in, uh, in the 50 AD era, and so we're backing up about uh, 20 years when we go to uh, Acts 2. But it does describe exactly what tongues were when they first occurred on the day of Pentecost. So Acts 2 verse 1 talks about the day of Pentecost. It's, it's the first day of the Feast of, of Pentecost. And a little bit of his timeline of how these feasts work. Uh, Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the Feast of Firstfruits. Died on Passover day, raised as a Feast of Firstfruits. Interesting side point. As we get to chapter 15, it'll say we're going to be raised because Jesus, our firstfruits, was raised from the dead. Okay, Pentecost comes 50 days, Penta, Pentagon, right? Penta, yeah. So Penta, 50 days later in the Jewish Old Testament calendar, was the Feast of Pentecost. And that's when God designed and planned that the Holy Spirit would come. 
What happened in these 50 days? Well, for some 40 days, Acts 1-3 tells us that Jesus was appearing. So the appearances to the disciples, or even that time, he appeared to 500 people. That all happened in the first 40 days. And then Acts 1-9 tells us Jesus ascended up to heaven. And he had said he was going to leave. He warned the disciples at the Passover meal, I'm going to be going. But he said, if I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to be with you forever. And so the believers were gathering. There are some 120 believers, according to Acts 1. And, and that, that, that's how many people were actually, that, that's how big the church was after Jesus had left, just 120 people. And, and they were praying, and 10 days later then, Jesus' promise came true, and he sent the Holy Spirit. And so from now on, that was a major shift in how God worked in his people because now the Holy Spirit would be dwelling in us. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and it started here in, in Acts 2. So um, Jews from the entire Roman Empire would travel, pilgrims kind of, to Jerusalem for the major feasts. In fact, it seems that because these two feasts were so close together, 50 days, that many people came and stayed with friends and family in Jerusalem uh, for that whole 50 days. Uh, Josephus, the historian, talks about some phenomenal numbers, like the, the population of Jerusalem is like doubled or something during this time. So there's a lot of people here, which was a really good time for God to fulfill his promise to send uh, the Spirit. And so they were all gathered there in Jerusalem for that time and uh, celebrating both of these feasts. Um, and on this day of Pentecost, you've got the 120 believers praying, and some amazing miracles take place. The first thing, if you happen to be looking at your text in Acts 2, is that there was this sound of a rushing wind. So the wind, a miraculous wind blowing around, that, that was the first one. The second sign was flames of fire that were on top of every individual's head, kind of like some of the Christian art actually shows. And so that was a phenomenal thing. But then, starting in verse 4, something else happened that as the Holy Spirit came. So after the wind, after the flames, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, as we just explained. When they heard this sound of the tongues, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? The apostles, they were all called out of Galilee, the northern part of the uh, Bible uh, map, basically. Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. So this was the gift of tongues. It was the ability, at least of the apostles, to speak in a language that these speakers had never, ever learned. Is that like mind-blowing or, or what? They were speaking in a language they had never learned. So was, was this necessary so that these Jewish pilgrims could understand 
what the disciples were saying. It really wasn't necessary for that purpose. Because, you see, these were Jewish pilgrims. They lived in Jewish communities. They spoke Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew in their home community in, in Pontus or Asia or wherever, but they also spoke it with the Jews. That's why they went there. These are friends. We, we can all speak Jewish, or actually uh, Hebrew, which is an uh, Aramaic a form of, of Hebrew. They also all knew Greek. Alexander the Great had, had, made, had made the Greek language the trade language a couple hundred years before, really, I think, by the Spirit preparation for this time, so that we have a New Testament that's all written in the same language in spite of how many different places Paul went. So, so they, they, they knew Hebrew, they knew Greek. They didn't have to hear their home language, but they were trilingual, which puts me and many others to shame, right? I'm a one-language one, one guy. So they were hearing their language being spoken by the apostles. What an amazing miracle. To what end if they didn't need it to be able to understand them? It was to get their attention. It was to get their attention so that they would listen carefully because Peter was about to preach a sermon about the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of that sermon, some 3,000 people would believe in Christ. But if you're listening to somebody present new truth and you don't have John 3.16 and you don't have Ephesians 2.8 and 9, how do you have, what is the mark of the authority of what you're saying? So God sent, it seems, this amazing miracle to give authority to what Peter would preach and 3,000 people were saved. So next week as we look in chapter 14, it says, in fact, verse uh, 22, that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And so it, it really had this impact on them. So tongues, verse 8, are going to cease. They're going to, they're going to die out. The need for this might die out. And so it, it begins to suggest to us as we have a complete authority that we can, I, I can share the gospel with authority saying, this is what God says right here. This is God's word. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. So it seems there might be a point at which tongues would cease. Paul doesn't talk about tongues in the rest of chapter 13 now. The rest of our study today doesn't talk about tongues. It talks about prophecy and knowledge, the other two. Chapter 14 will include tongues. But now it's about knowing in part and prophesying in part. Verse 9. For we know in part that gift, and we prophesy in part that gift. No mention of tongues. This is now about knowledge and prophecy. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. He illustrates it in two ways, childhood and a mirror. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So he's making the point that, that uh, compared, remember this is comparing love that never fails, gifts will. And in fact, not only do prophecy and knowledge come to an end somehow, but they really don't give us the full picture. We, we, we just, we're scrambling. We have the whole word of God and we still don't know everything. But someday we will. We're right now we know in part. So this, this doesn't diminish our need to study the Scripture. Uh, 
Paul tells Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. So this is one of those issues I'm trying to rightly divide the word of truth, but I'm going to miss something. You know what? I'm going to be corrected on some things. that we, we all have a partial knowledge. We all need to approach the Scripture with a sense of humility because we don't know it all. But verses 9 through 12 are assuring us someday we will know it all. And so he picks out these two gifts about information and saying, even these gifts are temporary in, in some sense. When will that end? Well, it says when the perfect comes. When perfection comes, or you may have, when the perfect comes, these imperfect, I think he's specifically talking about prophecy and knowledge, will be done away. So, again, that word is that same, uh, the Greek word of verse 8, that, uh, that uh, prophecy and knowledge will, will pass away. So when is the perfect here? Again, guess what? People disagree. Uh, One idea is that the perfect is when the New Testament was complete. That idea kind of appeals to me because I think from other passages that that is when tongues did cease. But actually this is not about tongues. It's about prophecy and knowledge. And frankly, verse 12 points to a different time that the perfect comes. What does it say is, is, is going to characterize the coming of the perfect. We're going to see face to face, and we're going to know fully. That's not here. That's not now. The only thing that I can tell that fits knowing fully and seeing face to face is when we're in heaven. Then we're going to know fully. Then we're going to see face to face. We won't need any spiritual gifts in heaven. Here's some more good news. No sermons in heaven, okay? <laughs> I'll be totally done on that. When the partial is done away, there, there is a, there's an imperfect use of all of our gifts. We just, let's just shrug and say, we, we, there won't be any confusion someday. There won't be any denominations someday. There won't be any non-denominational Bible churches someday. There will just be the church and the body of Christ gathered together, all agreeing, so there's no sermons, but there is something we will continue to do, and that is praising Him. Praising Him. So so that's why you need to make worship a priority as well, is because it is the one uh, activity, Godward activity, that is going to continue into into, into eternity. It bridges what we do here in worship so imperfectly is going to be happening uh, in heaven, but because we won't be going to Bible studies in heaven. Us pastors aren't going to be like, okay, guys, come on, get together. We're going to, we're, we're going to study this over here. Hmm. Not needed because spiritual gifts will expire. Paul illustrates it with these two uh, really remarkable illustrations. The first one is Paul talking about when he was a little boy. Okay, Just, just kind of appreciate the, the personal nature of, 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 of verse 11, first of all. When I was a child... This is Paul talking. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. He's making an illustration how, in a sense, the way we function, the amount of knowledge we have, it's like, it's like baby talk. That, that's how much we know. <laughs> kind, of, kind of humbling, right? In fact, he's using the word, uh, the child word is not even like this kind of child. It's, it's the word for babies or, or infants. Uh, Babies don't think about God. 
They don't think about heaven and hell. They, all they can think about is themselves and where is mom because I'm hungry or whatever it might be. And, and even as they start to grow up a little bit and begin to ask questions, they, they, they ask things that they'll know later on. You know, why is the sky blue or, or why does it get dark at night or, or where do babies come? Dreadful questions like that. When I became a man, though, I put away childish things. Now I know stuff. I, I, I understand money and health and geography and, and science. And so Paul says, you know, I, I, I progressed to, from this stage in which I didn't know hardly anything to an, hey, I, I really understand, you know, what humans understand. He says, that's kind of like this life on earth, life in heaven. We know some things today. They're very good, important, essential things. Next illustration, verse 12. The mirror. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now, as we read that today, we might think, no, mirrors are like a very perfect uh, reflection, but they didn't have our kind of mirrors back then, did they? The only kind of mirrors they had, they didn't have glass mirrors with that film, film thing. It, they just had like polished metal. They did the best they could make that thing as smooth as possible, but uh, it was still at best, a hazy, blurry reflection. Uh, you probably couldn't see your own wrinkles. And so your husband could keep lying and saying, you haven't changed a bit, honey. <laughs> then we're going to see face to face. When do we see face to face? I came across in, in Job 19 recently. 19. After my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Isn't that exciting? We, we have like this, this understanding of God. We read verses about the glory, the blazing glory of God. We, we, we wonder sometimes, and maybe even more as we age, what is it like to be in the presence of God? But we're going to actually be in God's presence and see him face to face. Just a partial view now, so I'll know fully then. So my questions will be answered. Your questions will be answered. We have to, we, why did that bad thing happen? We don't know. We have partial knowledge. Why, why were we made short or tall or, or disabled or, or very strong and skilled and have more money or less money? Why did we have more or less opportunity? We don't know. We have a partial knowledge, but... The moment we enter eternity, whether it's by rapture when he returns or death, we're going to be infused with this mighty blast of full knowledge. And so your, your loved one, our dear friend Seth, got this blast of knowledge and all the questions about the Bible, about eternity, about why this happens, it was all, all suddenly filled in. The answer key to life's trials is just handed to us because we're going to know fully. Won't that be great? See, Paul was trying to bring to the Corinthian church a, a perspective that they desperately needed because we are so earthbound. We're just, we're looking at each other. We're thinking all these horizontal thoughts and I'm better than you or whatever. He says, just get over it. We, there's a time when we're going to know all these things. And basically, this is an immature state that we're living in. And let's just acknowledge that and have the humility to say that. And but complete knowledge is, is waiting for us just like, like one moment on the other side of the dreaded valley of the shadow of death, and it's going to be 
we'll be fully known and see him face to face. We're almost there, church. We're almost there. We don't know how long it is, but, but it, whether it's death or rapture, it's coming. And so it's a very encouraging and yet sobering to realize, okay, so I've got to really view myself differently. So, so, so Paul, how should we live then if love doesn't end? Maybe we should focus on love. Verse 13. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Uh, remain or abide is actually a, a new term, but it, these, are, these, are, these are things that we live with now in this age. They continue. They continue. We have faith now. We have hope now. We have love now. But there's one that's greater, probably because, he's going back to, because it never, never ends. So he's gone in verses 8 to 12 to comparing love to spiritual gifts, which are temporary, to now he's comparing love to other essential spiritual traits. I picture it kind of like this. We've got our life on earth. We have life in heaven. This is our, our life. And in verses 8 to 12, talking about spiritual gifts, he says, they're all going to end at some point. Love never fails. We will be loving perfectly in heaven. And now with a little bit different emphasis, now not talking about spiritual gifts, but about these essential spiritual traits of faith, hope, and love, he says, likewise, faith and hope are great. But when do we need faith? When do we need hope? It's while we're in this life, right? But we're going to need love all the way through. So love and its superiority becomes really quite clear. There's a lot of overlap, I think, between faith and hope. But let's not neglect that they are in this passage and are essential for this life because it, it, it is the only way we can really appreciate and anticipate what eternity is like. Faith. Paul would write to the Corinthians later that we walk by faith, not by sight. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, that's now, we are away from the Lord, that's then, we'll be in his presence face to face, for we live by faith, not sight. We can't see him now, we will see him face to face. So we make it our goal to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. So what should we be doing? We should be pleasing God. What pleases God, Corinthians, is love. You got all these gifts, you got all these ministries, they make you look good, but we should be pleasing God. That's what we do while we wait, live to please the Lord. Hope. Hebrews 11, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So we can know things for sure that are revealed in his word, even though we don't see them. That's what faith means. And then they says that's what the ancients were commended for. And we have this list we sometimes call the hall of faith. And so, you know, by faith, you know, Noah built this ark. How crazy did that seem? But God said to do it. Judgment's coming. By faith, uh, Abraham was told to, to leave his home country and go wherever I tell you to, okay? Sign a blank check. Abraham left. By faith, Moses, he dared to confront Pharaoh of Egypt and, and take the people through the Red Sea, all these things that they didn't see the future, but they trusted God 
who knew the future. They lived to please the Lord. So, so, so be like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and everybody else in that list. Believe now about the promises that will only be true eventually when we see him face to face. Or to the Romans, Paul said, we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Won't that be good? We're all probably thinking of some part of our body that needs redeemed, and it's going to be redeemed. For in hope... In this hope we were saved, but hope that is, not, that is seen is no hope at, at all. The word hope in the New Testament is almost always used in the sense of confidence, not, not like I hope the Packers win next week. That, that's not a very confident statement. But hoping biblically is trusting with confidence that what God promised is actually going to happen. So, but if we, verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We develop patience because we develop confidence in, in God himself. So while we do not know the whole plan, we do know God who has the plan. And so we can wait patiently because of that. So, so faith and hope, Paul says, verse 13, these are crucial. We need them all the time. But here's the thing, love never fails. And love is the greatest. So what should we be spending our effort and time on? Love each other sacrificially now. We, have, we, we live in the now. So who has God placed in your life right now that needs selfless love? Which is what love is, is selfless. No one is in our life accidentally. Everyone that's in our life is there providentially. God, God has placed them in our life now, and, and maybe they won't be that person in your life five years from now, but right now they're there. Who in your family maybe uh, needs this sacrificial grace? Don't wait for it to be fair. Don't, don't uh, pretend to be a traitor in love. That is, I'll trade, I'll give you my love, you give me yours, because... There, there will be no perfect, fair relationship. The very definition of love being selfless means that we don't even, that we, we, we rid ourselves of that kind of thinking. And so we go back to the first seven verses that it's not patient, it's patient and kind and not proud. I'm more righteous than you. Not keeping track of wrongs. You remember you always, your family. Neighbors and coworkers are always a great workshop on love unpredictable, maybe unbelievers, and a great place to, to practice the character of Christ who actually came for unbelievers, came for sinners. And then there's the people in the room. That's Paul's first concern here. We worship alongside each other week by week. What an unusual crew we are, huh? Just all of, little of this and little of that and different backgrounds different weaknesses, different failures. Don't avoid. Uh, dive into to fellowship with people who are unlike you because you can't escape this group. They're going with you to heaven. So whether they get there before you or after you, uh, we're all going to see face to face someday. We'll all be... We'll all be uh, Fully, fully aware and all the questions and all the conflicts. 
Paul's, Paul's calling them this, to this eternal perspective. Everything else is temporary, but we're going to still be needing to love each other. Only then we can do it perfectly. So what, what would honor God more that in our imperfections of this life, when, when we're still bound by sin and stuck with partial knowledge, what would honor him more than that we would sacrificially care, accept, appreciate, and serve one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, presence. Every time we gather around your word, we acknowledge before you that uh, we have partial knowledge and that, uh, and that we have partial sight. We just, we just have kind of glimpses of, of what you are like, but we look forward to the day we will see you face to face. We pray that we will wait patiently, that we will uh, reserve judgment on the unanswered questions, that we would give you the, the glory completely, uh, knowing that, that all of our doubts will be answered someday. Help us to serve faithfully with our gifts. Help us not to abandon our opportunities or abandon one another or to judge one another, but to uh, just so appreciate the way you've constructed the body that it would be a place where we can practice the, uh, the abiding, permanent uh, character that, that, that typifies you from eternity past, that you would love us perfectly, even while we were sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.